Welcome to the Law of Stars podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Yeah, this morning we're here with uh, Shahid Batar. Is that what I'm saying you that right? It. It's yeah. um, And uh, he's running for Congress against Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco. Um, he, he, I, I reached out to Joe uh, the other day and I was saying we should really get Shahid on the, on the, on the podcast because when I look at his bio, I've, just, I, I've been tracking his, his, um, his campaign and watching him on Twitter. I mean, he, I think he's one of the most interesting um, perspectives we've got uh, running for Congress. Um, he, he, I, I think I told Joe I thought he was probably one of the coolest people I've, I've heard of running. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, a, he's an artist. He, he, uh, he's a poet. He has a, is a constitutional scholar out of Stanford. He worked with Larry Lessig uh, when he was there. He also uh, spent time working for the EFF on um, all kinds of tech um, uh, activism, and um, and he's just a, an, an all around interesting guy. Um, he's he's taking on Nancy Pelosi, who is super powerful uh, Democrat establishment candidate, and it's just an interesting thing. I'd love to see more candidates like him, and I'd love to hear more about what what he's doing. So, um, so we're really happy to have you on the show, and um, I guess I'll, I'll turn it to you and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and and you know what what you're what you're doing and and why and and uh, some of your background, and then we'll go sure. from there. Uh, so I'm running for Congress in California's 12th Congressional District as a challenge to the bipartisan aspect of corporate corruption in federal policy. I'm running basically because our system's broken and the incumbent who's represented San Francisco for the last 30 years is very much an embodiment of the corporate co-optation of federal policy. And earlier this year, the particular reason I'm running is that when uh, FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, was up for extension. Nancy Pelosi helped extend and expand the domestic surveillance powers available to the Trump administration. And it was about a month later that Democrats gave Trump his budget without any fixes for immigrant students. And as a Muslim immigrant constitutional lawyer who spent the last 13 years fighting the mass surveillance regime, that was a little bit more than I could take and watch from the sidelines. I'm very concerned about the future of democracy and liberty in the United States. Uh, I say that as a progressive who's also committed to social services uh, and promoting peace and justice around the world and trying to challenge uh, runaway militarism and xenophobia in the United States. I would put it this way, witnessing the emergence of all of the defining cornerstones of authoritarianism and their bipartisan entrenchment uh, I feel uh, incumbent to escalate my resistance. You know, my work at EFF for the last three years, I've been building a national grassroots network to support the digital rights movement. And long before that, I've been fighting uh, a whole host of uh, constitutional abuses, mostly by national uh, security agencies. Um, and I see a very dark future if we're not able to uh, recover a meaningful commitment to the rule of law and rights and liberties. Yeah, what I think what's interesting is that this this stuff is. I mean, there, there are definitely elements of your platform that are that are strongly um, Democrat leaning, but a lot of this stuff is really bipartisan. This is not a, a, a right versus left issue about whether the government should be surveilling us. And um, and you know, I think there's a lot of Republicans out there that would probably think that they, they like their conservative fiscal policies and maybe even their social stuff. But the, but I'd like to think that there's some of them would object to the sort of racist and, and sort of uh, the xenophobic uh, policies that we're seeing. Um, you know, that's got to offend some of them. So uh, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be nice if, if people could come together around, um, you know, a candidate that, that is, is kind of outside of the establishment. I think that people voted for, for Donald Trump because he was an outsider. Um, it seems like the as much as I'm upset about what Republicans are doing, I'm, I'm equally frustrated with what the Democrats are doing because they just don't seem like they're putting up much of a fight. Um, so I'm really glad to see 
fighters fighters come into the race. <laughs> right on. Thank you. And I, I think you're exactly right. The 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 rise of right wing nationalism and the populism that is driving the contemporary Republican Party is absolutely problematic. But that notwithstanding, there are voices on the right who do have commitments. Uh, however abstract they might seem to progressives, to some principles. And I think there's a really profound opportunity, not just on civil liberties and surveillance, but also on drug policy and cognitive liberty, on political process reforms and campaign finance, to work across the aisle with what I describe as a transpartisan consensus in the wings of the political spectrum against the bipartisan corruption of the establishment and either its Democratic or its Republican faces. Um, you know, ultimately, when we see unapologetic kleptocracy in the White House, it is incumbent upon the Democratic caucus to mount meaningful and assertive resistance, not just rhetorically, but to actually pull the levers that they have access to to impede the administration. You know, confirming Trump's nominees is a good example, or handing him his budget. These are both examples of Democratic complicity. Uh, you know, just last week, um, some Democrats voted with most of the Republican caucus to confirm an international war criminal to lead the CIA. And I've done a lot of work challenging human rights abuses by our government, as well as trying to build the case for accountability for people who were complicit in human rights abuses. And I think a lot of people forget that the, the international human rights that the CIA violated, they weren't insignificant. We fought a world war to establish the international human rights regime and the country to which we lost it was the United States, not some foreign power. And I, that turns my stomach as an immigrant who came to this country to be free. Uh, I'm not willing to let those principles die on my watch. That's really great, Shahid. I appreciate I appreciate everything you said so much. The one thing I, I, I keyed off of that you said just now was cognitive liberty. I'd love yeah. for you to talk more about that. Sure. So. You know, embedded in our constitutional structure, uh, and you can kind of go back to the Declaration of Independence for some expressions of this, is this principle that people in the United States have a right to pursue happiness, right? Uh, the Constitution, in some respects, is an elaborate set of limitations on government power and authority to make sure that people are free, right? You might think of the Constitution as a very elaborate freedom engine, um, or at least an attempted one. <clears throat> and the real basis for what some people in political theory describe as the libertarian harm principle, is that you should be unconstrained to do what you want as long as you don't infringe on someone else's rights. Um, and we could dive into the eddies around that and how it relates to antitrust policy and the tragedies of the commons and whatnot. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> the point is that if, you're, if what you're doing doesn't impact anyone else, you should have a right to do it. And I see this particularly implicated in the war on drugs. Uh, so you could think about the war on drugs as a race-neutral way to manage public safety threats. Uh, that unfortunately would not fit the reality by a mile. In fact, the war on drugs is a quintessential example of institutionalized racism that has destroyed the lives of individuals around the country, families around the country, entire communities around the country for more than a generation. And it's yeah. Hey, let me, let me, yeah, let me, yeah, sorry to interrupt you here, but whenever I was just, I'm really, I've, I've seen more and more, uh, Democrats and I, 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 who were just standing up and saying, Hey, we've got to legalize cannabis. Um, and, and that's awesome. We need, we need more people to stand up and say that. I, I'm just curious whether you think 
you know, how, when do we, when are we going to get to 100 percent of the Democrats who stand up and say this? When, when are we, we, we going to get this done? Yeah, I mean, we'll get it done when we remove the, the Democrats who are not there. Basically, I mean that the and and this is another of those issues where it's not left versus right. There are plenty of Republicans who recognize uh, cognitive liberty as a principle and who want to roll back the war on drugs either as a civil rights imperative or as a good governance measure. Or, you know, another way to think about this from a left-leaning perspective, if we legalize cannabis, it would unleash a wave of green jobs across the country in cultivation and refinement and distribution. It's a cash crop that is carbon sequestering. Like there are actually positive environmental externalities with this industry, unlike, say, the fossil fuel industry, right, which has any number of negative economic and other externalities associated with it. So the short answer to your question, I think, is when we, when we fight the establishment and confront it from the wings with sufficient force and with sufficient seats in Congress, that's when the war on drugs will, will finally turn. Yeah, I, I see the, the broader issue, and I know you're talking about it as well, is this generally this idea of criminal justice reform. And we really need criminal justice reform in general. I mean, it's, it would be great to legalize cannabis, but I think that would just be one small step. We have a, a I think, just a and we have so many criminal laws, we can't even actually count them anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, scholars can't even count them. <laughs> it used to be we had like one federal criminal law. It was called treason. And now we've got we've just got this thousands of these things. And the, it just seems to me it's just it's just overdone. It's overdone. And we need to repeal a lot of these laws, just flat out repeal them. And I'm frankly not sure if, uh, why could, we couldn't just set a goal of like, let's repeal half of them. Let's just delete half of all this federal <laughs> criminal law and see I mean, what happens. I, Go ahead, yeah. You know, I just don't, I think it would just be beneficial to just really do a rethinking of, of kind of where we wound up. Certainly a rethinking. And, and, you know, rather than repealing sections of the code wholesale, I think realize most criminal law is not exercised uh, or prosecuted at the federal level. Most of it is states. But there is still a role for the federal government, not only in, uh, you know, the sort of approach you're describing, but particularly in examining human rights abuses and civil rights abuses by law enforcement agencies at the state level, right? Justice Department investigations of police tactics. It's not just the theoretical criminalization of particular activities. Uh, you know, the, the rubber hits the road with militarized police. The war on drugs would be, you know, bad enough were it not executed by paramilitaries. But then you put those two things together. Um, you know, there, I'll shout out a group in Chicago called Lucy Parsons Labs, which documented that there, the Chicago Police Department was uh, commit. They were they were uh, conducting civil asset forfeitures, meaning that they were seizing property that they suspected to be either involved in or bought from uh, people involved in the drug trade, but without having to prove the guilt of any person. And so, seizing that property, selling that property, and then using it to buy new surveillance equipment to then use in secret, unconstitutionally against the people of Chicago. And so this sort of corrupt, sordid cycle. Uh, and, and I think of the, not just the war on drugs and not just uh, criminal law reform generally, but I think of this through the lens of an anti-corruption struggle because militarized police around the United States increasingly essentially are waging armed urban occupations. Uh, and, and that's a bigger issue than simply unwinding parts of the federal code. You know, my, my, it, I was smiling as you were talking about the need to embrace criminal justice reform generally because we have a 20-point criminal justice reform plan uh, that includes, you know, the top of my list is passage of the End Racial Profiling Act, which has never been made law in this country despite having been before Congress for the last 20 years nearly. It almost passed in 2001 
with the support of the Bush administration, which is preposterous when you then fast forward and think about you know, the Ferguson uprising, think about the controversy that spread across the country over the last several years, you know, driven by the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for black lives, and just the thorough indifference in the policy sphere paid to those concerns. I've taken direct action, not only with the movement for black lives, but also with the immigrant rights movement, with the Occupy movement, with the peace and justice movement, and the movement against globalization. Uh, and as a direct action activist, who was an artist long before I went to Stanford Law School, you know, I am not willing to look the other way when communities are viciously preyed upon. Uh, and, and what passes for our criminal justice system is basically an institutionalized racism generator. And the idea, you know, one last piece here and then I'll shut up. Um, some people who might have read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow or watched um, Ava DuVernay's 13th, that's a documentary film, might have been exposed to this principle that slavery remains legal in the United States today under the terms of the 13th Amendment as long as it's a condition of punishment. And we enslave more people legally through the criminal justice system, the prison industrial complex, than were ever enslaved in the South during the antebellum period. Uh, that historical juxtaposition unnerves me. I could go on about that, but I'll shut up for a minute. I'll just note that I think we've actually lost the defining principles in not only the Civil War, but also the Second World War, the American Revolution, and the Cold War. And I'm happy to unpack that if that's interesting. Yeah, the, the, the whole thing about private prisons in general um, is something that kind of gets me upset. Um, just the, the fact that people have a profit interest in seeing people locked up um, is, is, is uh, seems backwards. I don't know that very many people, I don't, I don't know why more attention isn't paid to that sort of thing. Um, I think it's, I think it's out. I think, I don't know why more attention is not paid to it. I think people just are, many are just trying to work and live their lives and then they tune in the news now and then and it's so depressing to turn and tune into it that it's easy to just not want to to watch it at all i mean it's really terrible if you look at or you know a big a big portion of the population just doesn't have to worry about it right like so if it, it might be it might be wrong and you might look at it and say that doesn't sound right but if if you don't know people that are getting thrown in prison and being forced to work like it, it sort of doesn't affect you personally um i don't know maybe we need maybe t the social media will help with that but i imagine it's a matter of like kind of bringing the reality to the attention of more people that don't have to touch it every day because without those people stuff doesn't doesn't happen you don't get you don't get the majority or consensus you need to pass any kind of legislation Can i say one thing there just real quick you're, you're you're describing in some respects the thesis of a georgetown law professor david cole who wrote a book called no equal justice back in the 90s before becoming even more widely renowned as one of the principal defenders of constitutional rights um, in the war on terror. <clears throat> he, he's litigated a whole bunch of cases before the Supreme Court, but his book, No Equal Justice, describes how as long as, and I'll reduce it here, you know, these are sort of um, hyperbolic examples, but as long as white kids in college don't have to fear the war on drugs and their white parents don't have to worry about it politically, the predation on communities of color will continue unimpeded. And your point about social media is also interesting because I think that you know, Cole was writing in the 90s, before the emergence of social media, what is driving the contemporary conversation about police abuses, social media, and the exposure of longstanding violations that people in these communities have been dealing with for centuries, to which most Americans turned a blind eye, because, you know, if you were insulated by racial or economic privilege, it wasn't your problem. Uh, but now increasingly, the tools are making available the opportunity for people to share their experiences across social divisions. And I do hope that enough people who might not have to fear the tip of the spear do at least understand the concerns and will take action to stand in solidarity with those communities. That's a big part of why I'm running, is to stand in solidarity 
with communities that have been targeted uh, and, and eviscerated in some cases by these kinds of practices. You'd think that, um, you know, the fact that everybody has a, a cell phone with a video camera in their pocket at all times um, and the police are wearing body cameras seems like it's it's finally shedding some light on things that probably weren't even people weren't even aware of before. Um, so, but, but what's weird is that on one hand, you've got this access to this information and, and the, the, the ability to kind of observe it with your own eyes through these videos of people being um, mistreated. And, and at the same time, watching as as those videos become more easily accessible and people are able to talk about and see each other's experience, seeing the rise of sort of the, the, the Trump, uh, the Trump phenomenon and how, I mean, it doesn't feel like the country has really moved in, in a, in a more enlightened direction in light of those videos. I, I don't know if maybe that's a backlash by the, by the, the conservatives to the, uh, the threat that that's emerging from people becoming aware of this, but it's, it doesn't feel like we're winning, uh, which is kind of sad. I don't, I don't, I kind of don't get it. But maybe maybe we're in a bubble. Maybe we're in a bubble. Yeah. Well, I, I think that there there are different layers to social change, and so where we are winning are is in the culture war, where we are still losing is in the policy sphere, and you know this gets back to I think it was maybe ten minutes ago you you were asking you know how do we turn the the corner here, and a big part of that is a generational transition in the people who represent our movements. Uh, you know, I'm running against someone who's represented San Francisco for thirty years. The internet hadn't even been born yet when Nancy Pelosi went to Congress. And in the years since she's been there, among other things, the federal budget for affordable housing, which is in dire crisis here in San Francisco, the federal budget to support affordable housing development has fallen over 60% since Nancy Pelosi entered Congress, almost 80% since its high water marks in the late 70s. Um, you know, These are reflections of the abdication of working people's interests by people who we uh, elect to represent us. I, a couple of things I want to throw in here, like an, another example, I think, of the uh, complicity of Democrats in, uh, of institutional establishment Democrats, I should say, in defending the rightward slide is, you know, Nancy Pelosi is among the Democrats who are very committed to corporate health care, which is insane to me. Like the idea, and, and there are a couple lenses through which to think about this, single payer, government paid, Medicare for all would not only expand human rights, and it would not only prevent bankruptcies and prevent many people from becoming homeless, it would also drive costs down across our healthcare system by removing administrative layers, by expanding access to preventive care, by leveraging economies of scale, and it would improve the competitiveness of U.S. businesses. You know, small businesses are generally exempt. I think the, the threshold is 50 employees under which, under the Affordable Care Act, you don't necessarily need to shoulder the uh, cost of employee health insurance. But... You know, middle-sized and large businesses uh, uniquely in the United States bear this burden. And if we actually put the government in the position of driving down the cost of, for health care across the system, it would be probably the most influential job creation lever that we could pull in federal policy. But Democrats are so committed to the corporate interests of health insurance companies that they won't go there. Uh, this is an example of the corporate corruption that unfortunately seizes both parties. And you know, whether we see it through the lens of drug policy or the co-optation of the internet as a tool for global surveillance or the erosion of human rights standards and the appointment of international war criminals to lead federal agencies, or if we just see it through committing ourselves to uh, for-profit distribution of human rights goods like healthcare, um, increasingly education, you know, it's kind of getting sucked into that same uh, bucket. I think we, we, we do have an opportunity to, as you were putting it, to win 
but I think it takes not only the cultural conversation that is happening, but it's also going to take a reflection and projection of political power. And one of the reasons I'm running is to create a vehicle for people in San Francisco who want to see a change uh, to have an, a real alternative at the ballot box. Yeah. So a few years ago, I think uh, we made or Congress made uh, student loan debts uh, not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on that? I believe that's still the law. It is still a law, and it's a perfect example of a uh, of a senseless policy that passes because of a lack of representation. The young people are not widely represented in Congress. Uh, Congress is generally um, well. I, the body as a whole is ossified, and the people in it generally are out of touch. Uh, they're disproportionately white, they're disproportionately wealthy, and they're disproportionately old. And it is the <clears throat> ignorance, I think, of those people, not only about many of the issues that they're charged to grapple with, and I just cite the Facebook hearings when Zuckerberg was testifying before <clears throat> the House and Senate earlier this year, as an example, a very visible reflection of congressional illiteracy. When you talk about student loans being made um, undischargeable through bankruptcy, that reflects Congress having its head in the sand or alternatively up its behind, right? Just think about what that represents. Students and <clears throat> people coming out of college are in the least strong financial position. They are the weakest point in the economic chain and making it uh, so that students can't seek bankruptcy relief from their student loans is basically like taking a pound of flesh out of these young people. And you have, you know, you see this impacted macroeconomically, the birth rate in the United States is declining, largely because young people face an uncertain economic future. And when you have a $150,000 yoke around your neck, you know, because you dared to get educated and try to participate in the modern economy. And, you know, let's just say you're in a job market where there aren't a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of people coming out of school who aren't able to find jobs commensurate with their training just because, you know, the jobs aren't there. Um, and yet still, they face this inexorable burden of paying back, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a degree that they're not able to economically leverage. Uh, and there is no relief. Just think about that. It is the height of not just insensitivity to those individuals, but it is a self-inflicted wound on the economy. And it is senseless. And I, I think it reflects the same illiteracy that, unfortunately, we have come to expect from Congress on all too many fronts. Yeah, no, no. I was I was going to ask to change gears a little bit. I'm curious to know, you know, I'm not in San Francisco and I don't really know what the political uh, feeling is there. I mean, t tell me about like what kind of I assume you're getting lots of good feedback because you're kind of interacting with supporters and things, but I mean, is is um is San Francisco fed up with Pelosi? Do you do you feel like your campaign has a good shot at at um at uh, unseating her? I know that California's got this two-party primary system. Does that mean it's possible that it could be you and her on the ballot or is it does a Republican almost always end up taking one of those slots because of the way to tell, tell us about sort of the landscape in California and, and whether an outsider who, who seems to be speaking the truth, but maybe is so contrary to what, to the establishment is, is uh, you'd think if San Francisco of all places might embrace something like that. What, what do you, what do you see your chances? And is this, um, you know, tell tell us about like how, how, um, how big is this obstacle? Yeah. I mean, I certainly face a steep climb and I have a lot of ground to cover, but just to be clear, I will win the seat either in the fall of 2018 or the fall of 2020. We do have a jungle primary system in California, which is unique. A lot of people are familiar with closed primaries, where each of the political parties has a separate election and the top vote getter goes to the general election. And in an open primary, any voter can vote for any candidate. 
but usually still, the top vote-getter from each party goes to the November election. California is unique in that we have an open jungle primary, meaning that any voter can vote for any candidate. And regardless of party affiliation, the top two vote-getters go into an automatic runoff in November. Uh, in the last election cycle, it was Nancy Pelosi facing an independent, not a Republican. And that independent, incidentally, his name's uh, Preston Pickus, he's endorsed me. Uh, in this campaign, as have any number of other voices. I can get to that in a minute. But uh, the long story short is on the primary, which for us is looming in um, about 10 days on June 5th is the primary election. I only have to take second place to then have the opportunity to be in the general election. And if I am the alternative to Pelosi, you know, if, if San Francisco has a choice between uh, someone who's been in office for 30 years, who's presided over, you know, a runaway military budget, an erosion in social services budget, you know, someone who's thrown constitutional rights and immigrants under the bus, and the alternative is a Muslim immigrant constitutional lawyer from Stanford Law School and the Electronic Frontier Foundation who DJs at Burning Man and writes music about the police violence crisis and the climate crisis. I'm pretty sure that's an election I will win. I just have to get the word out. Um, to your point about the, the obstacles I have to confront, Nancy Pelosi is far and away the most powerful Democrat in the House. She raises more money than God. And I'm not going to be able to out-fundraise her. I'm confident of that. But I'm also confident that I don't need to. I don't have to, you can't buy elections, right? So I can't beat her uh, through contributions. But as long as I can get the word out, and that seems to be happening, uh, I'm very convinced that the most progressive city in the country will choose someone who is as progressive uh, as, as we are. I sure hope so. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it sounds um, that sounds promising. I'm glad to hear it. I I, I just don't uh, I don't have a lot of feedback on sort of what the system looks like there, but I, I'm really encouraged to hear that there's. Uh, it feels like in San Francisco and at this particular time, uh, it seems like the most uh, prime opportunity for some something to change. Um, so that's that's fantastic. Right. What can people do to help your campaign? A lot of our listeners are in the Northwest, so some of us can't vote for you. Um, I, you know, what, what do you what do you recommend uh, we do if if people listening, if this resonates with them and they want to support you in some way, what can they do? Sure. Very first thing to do is to shout out our campaign uh, online. Social media is a huge opportunity for visibility, uh, and we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Shahid for Change. Um, people can visit our website shahidforchange.us. I would particularly uh, welcome and invite any campaign contributions to put gas in the tank and put us in a position uh, to fight the behemoth that we're challenging. You know, I'm David fighting Goliath, and uh, ultimately people who share our concerns are the sling. And so if you share uh, any of the concerns I'm talking about, certainly would welcome uh, your support. Um, introductions to friends, allies, acquaintances, collaborators, colleagues, clients in the Bay Area are priceless because people in San Francisco, of course, can, uh, can vote for us on June 5th. Um, and maybe the last thing I'd say is separate from our campaign is a commitment to the underlying social movements, the movements for immigrant rights, the movements for police accountability, the movements to rein in runaway military spending and to divert those resources to secure universal health care, affordable housing, affordable college, to get a roof over the uh, heads of every veteran. These are opportunities that I'm not the only one promoting, right? There are lots of voices in the political sphere. And, and one reason I've long bemoaned electoral politics as a litigator, media activist, grassroots organizer, and direct action activist is that electoral politics generally is ephemeral. You know, you have people, they run narcissistic campaigns that are about them, and then they're gone. And at the end of the day, you know, my campaign aims not only to challenge an incumbent, 
but to help continue the process of building a movement to mow down an establishment, not just here in San Francisco, but everywhere else too. You know, I'm very inspired not only by the social movements that I've been a part of, but you know, particularly by the 2016 presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders. And if you took Bernie Sanders and remixed him with a Muslim tech activist, like that's what I am basically, is someone very committed to working people who's also very concerned about low-income communities of color and aware of how our long-standing civil rights challenges emerge with different faces in the 21st century, particularly in the context of technology. Um, I see the opportunity for supporters to contribute money to the campaign, to help shout out the campaign, to introduce the campaign to supporters here in San Francisco. Those are all things they can do for the campaign. But one thing that people can do for our shared objectives is to plug into and support local organizations that are building those social movements. You know, I came out of those social movements. I am a projection of their history. Uh, and while I might be one opportune um, vehicle for people to values to find expression, there are any number of others that might be closer to home. So I just I also very strongly encourage your listeners to keep their ears to the ground, to think globally, and particularly to act locally, to find a vehicle to take local action. That's ultimately where the, that's how, that's how things change over time. Yeah, Shahid, this is great. I really, really, I love everything you're saying. And I'm so inspired to have, and so, so thankful to have you on our show. And so we'll definitely, um, you know, be on the lookout to give shout outs and social media and everything else. And if you make it to Seattle, we'd love to, we'd love to have you come speak to, to a group of us about what, you know, what you're, what you're doing and what you're working on. I'm, I'm sure love people would love to hear it. And by the way, out of my own curiosity, when did you, when did you come to, when, when did you move here? When did you come to the country? To the States, yeah. Uh, first of all, I'd be happy to come to Seattle and, and to have that event. And should I do well on June 5th, I think I likely will have an opportunity to come up this summer. My family came to the States in 1976. Uh, I was born in 1974 in England, so I was two years old. We had come to England from Pakistan, where both of my parents um, uh, were born before the partition uh, of India and Pakistan. And so uh, we fled discrimination twice. We moved from Pakistan to England because our family, in addition to many others in Pakistan, were decried as religious heretics. Um, we're Muslim, but not of a sort favored by the institutional establishment there. So then we were in England, where as people of South Asian descent, you know, we were basically post-colonial subjects facing a whole different kind of discrimination there. We came to the United States having fled religious discrimination to then flee racial discrimination. What we found in rural Missouri, of all places, in 1976 was an incredibly welcoming, open-hearted, loving community of rural white Americans who I used to know as uncle and aunt. You know, we, li we lived in a community that had under 350 people in it. They're the, the closest stop sign, they're probably the closest stop light, was 20 miles away. The elementary school was seven miles in one direction. The high school was 11 miles in the other direction. You know, this was as quintessentially bucolic as you could imagine. Uh, and, and we had an incredible experience. Now, that was all pre-9-11. I've been to that community since. Um, uh, and, you know, there is a 30-foot-tall cross on the front lawn of the house where my best friend Mike Riddle used to live, uh, directly across the street from the house that I grew up in. Um, you know, I've seen tectonic shifts in our civilization of the sort that <clears throat> feel like regression to me. You know, there was a melting pot, even in Rosebud, Missouri, 20 years ago. And, you know, I fear that we are devolving into a mixed salad and, uh, you know, ultimately even, even more disjointed than that. Uh, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a child of the Midwest. 
Um, and maybe the last thing I'd say there is that the, being an immigrant to the United States is one reason why I am so rapidly patriotic. It's why I'm committed to the international human rights principles that we've indicated in the Second World War. It's why I'm, I'm committed to fighting mass surveillance, which is part of why we were supposedly fighting the Cold War. It's why I'm committed to trying to roll back the prison industrial slavery complex, because we fought against that in the Civil War. And it's one reason why I oppose General Warrants and mass surveillance, because that goes all the way back to the American Revolution. These conflicts and the principles we secured at these moments in time, they are world historical, and they're not lost on me. You know, my, I, I, I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to grow up in this civilization, and I want it to persist, to be available to others coming after me. I don't have kids, I'm happy about that, but I have nephews and nieces, and I have plenty of friends with kids, and I fear their futures. And that's a big reason why I'm doing this, to try to defend them, since they're not in a position to do it themselves yet. Yeah, well, it's awesome. I'm, I'm really, really glad you're, you're in the ring. You're in, the, you're in there. I'm so thankful, because so many people don't do it. They don't want to jump in, so thank you for doing this. Thank you, brother. That's really kind. I appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity to speak with you today. This is uh, really fun. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, Shahid Buttar, uh, you can find out more at uh, Shahid for Change. Is that right? You got it. Shahidforchange.us. Yep. Shahidforchange.us. Uh, so check it out. And um, and thanks for being on the show. Pay attention to this race. And um, and if there, I guess my, my parting thought would be, uh, what I love most ab- about uh, about this campaign is that that it's a progressive campaign. It, it, it reflects um, uh, a viewpoint that we don't see in Congress right now. And so, if anybody out there is listening, I think we need more like this. If you've got an interesting perspective, and if you don't, you know, uh, come from the same background as all the people that seem to be running the country right now, you know, I think the answer is to get involved. And so, con- uh, you know. Kudos to you for 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 stepping up and um and please I guess give give any support you can if if this message resonates with you, um and uh, and we'll see you all next week.